It is said that many years ago, the king Agirufo destroyed the city of Cremona and that for the longest time it remained a pile of ruins destined to be forgotten with the memory of its people crumbling to dust. But then one spring morning, a war-weary Gaelic prince encamped on the banks of the Po with his army near a pile of crumbling stone buildings. And it was there, as he was resting, that he saw an extraordinary sight. A lion. But this was no ordinary lion. It was limping and appeared to be in pain, unable to walk on one of its paws. The gallant and fearless prince approached the animal, and the beast, upon remarking the prince, showed him his injured paw, cut and bleeding with a thorn sticking out of the wound. The young man, showing not an inkling of fear, removed the thorn and healed the lion's soft paw, after which the large feline promptly disappeared. Just imagine the prince's surprise when a few hours later the lion reappeared with a deer in his jaws. Padding forward, he offered his gift to the young man, laying his catch at the prince's feet as a gift. The mysterious prince left with his army the very next morning, but as they were setting off, who should appear but the faithful lion who would go on and follow him wherever he would go? When they reached Rome, the prince realised that the ruined city where he had encamped and met his beloved lion was the city of Cremona. And so, as he made his way once again through the countryside, he headed for the ruins of this city. But tragically on the way, his trusty lion died. And so, upon reaching the city, the Gaelic prince decided to rebuild Cremona. Firstly, he buried the lion, and on that spot he built an incredibly tall tower called the Torazzo. This is the bell tower of the cathedral in Cremona. And on top of this tower, for a very long time, was a majestic bronze statue of a lion in the act of raising his paw towards the prince. A few centuries after the lion was placed on the tower, the bronze animal was melted down and fashioned into a large bell that was placed in the tower. And as the bell rings, the memory of the faithful lion lives on. Today, there are at least 13 lions dotted along the facade of the baptistry and more in front of the cathedral. Perhaps one of these fierce felines was the prince's faithful friend. And this is the legend of the Lion of Cremona. Hello and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, l'École Nationale de Lutterie in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, 
revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. In the last episode of the Violin Chronicles, we looked at Andrea perfecting the outline of the modern-day violin and the French court under King Charles IX, Catherine de' Medici's heavy influence as regent on her young son and the significance of the images painted on the instruments ordered for the king, who was indeed a music-loving monarch, and finally the Amati's working methods that led in part to their success as instrument makers. Almost five years after the royal tour, Andrea is now 65. His place as a master instrument maker is undisputed. He has received orders from the King of France, no less. His production would have been different to that of violin makers today, in that he would have had to have been more flexible, making different sized and shaped instruments of the Renaissance era. He would have simply been following the fashion and client demand of the time. I talked to fashion historian Dr. Emily Brayshaw about what people would have looked like back then and what musicians in particular would have worn. They, yeah, they, they were wearing this kind of thing, so they were, it would probably hinder them a bit as well if they couldn't move. Yeah, so, so um, you've got like farthingale sleeves on the men even. but um, And what it, what it would do though is if you sort of look at these portraits of musicians and portraits of them playing instruments to you can sort of get an idea of how they moved with that so you know if you've got a massive ruff um, which is you know your 1580s fashion you're not going to be sticking your instrument under your chin you know there's too much rough there's too much lace there's too much collar so you might be holding it lower down perhaps against your um your upper pecs if it's a violin or you'll be like playing it gamba style on, on your lap, you know, or if they're bigger, got variations of them resting on the floor, these kind of things. So, yeah, it's definitely going to be influencing how you're playing your instruments too. And, the yeah, so the um, just the, the elbows as well, to be able to move your elbows, that's, that's always an issue. For it is string. an issue. Yeah, it, absolutely it is an issue. And if you can, you sort of see photos of like these big farthingale sleeves, these slashed sleeves, um, you know, big puffed sleeves, these kind of things, you're not going to be raising your arms too high above your head. I mean, I guess it depends where the arm supplies cut um, in your tailored outfit. And certainly there would be outfits that they required movement in, you know, like if you're going into battle, Mm. you want full mobility or you're training for fighting or these sorts of things. So um, what's interesting in a lot of these illustrations is they're very idealised bodies coming from the art conventions of the Renaissance that were um, looking to uh, classical Greek and Roman statues. And in portraits of the era, the shoulders are, we can see in these portraits, the neckline sits right down around the upper forearms. Yeah, particularly like off-the-shoulder type dress. Yeah, yeah. Um, here we've got this here in a Mary Princess Royal portrait and we've got like this really low down, cut down, and it would have been very, very difficult to raise your arms and your elbows would have been set right down. And we see this a lot in like the Peter Lely portraits. 
Yes, so there's a lovely portrait of a woman playing a gamba that we sort of see with that and she's got one of these gowns on. And we see the shoulders sloping and falling again with menswear of the 1650s too. But yeah, these sloping shoulders that we're seeing in the 1650s would have contributed to that. You know, the elbows being kept closer to the body, keeping your body front on, the instrument being held lower against the layers of fabric and then playing like that, being everything being held close in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, that, yeah, the classic gamba playing posture would yeah. have worked. But, oh, would have worked perfectly. But the, having to stick your elbows out or lift an instrument high just wouldn't have worked no no so that's why the instruments you know we do still have pictures of violins being played quite low and held quite low and then there was often um you would accompany yourself by singing and playing the violin yeah and you could do that because it's not tucked under your chin so that's our 1605 kind of look there wow i mean you've got a platform that you could you rest your scones on yeah i mean i feel i'd feel like if i was a man with all that fabric on i would just feel like putting the instrument next to me like it would just feel like a a stretch holding it the way we do now yeah i think so given that there were lots and lots of layers under these two so you know again it's, it's all part of the layering and also even though you don't have like in the 1600s now you don't have these massive ruffs in most of Europe. The Dutch held on to the, the ruffs and these big sort of cartwheel collars for a lot longer than the rest of Europe. You know, you've got what's known as a falling band. So the lace collars are coming down. You still do have a little bit of a rise on the collars as well. So you've still got, you know, like these collars would not have been necessarily ideal for holding your instrument against it. So it's probably going to be held a bit lower further down the further down the shoulder and we see that in images too you know the images slung under the shoulder all of this stuff was just mind-bogglingly expensive so not only would you have your portrait painted and that cost an absolute mozart you'd be wearing your absolute finest clothes for it when you're um, saying it was like half a million, like oh, and the rest, like, like in today's one money. outfit, would yeah, just one outfit for the portrait that you're wearing would be half a million dollars, plus all the other things that were often in your portrait as well. So they're kind of a bit like a selfie filter where you're, you know, flexing, showing your cash. So, for example, you know, if you were there playing a gamba in a portrait or playing an instrument in a portrait. Um, you'd be showing that yes you're musical you're cultured you're you know you're part of this you know this ideal humanistic world that values the humanities but also you can afford one of these really expensive instruments too it's another layer of wealth it is another layer of wealth yeah and there's a lot of layers of wealth in these portraits that get built up even things like oriental carpets they're extremely expensive so some people would have them on a table because they're so expensive that you wouldn't have them on the ground. But then you get like the next level nobility who have them on the ground. And it's like, I'm so rich, I can walk on my carpet. I'm walking on the money. Yeah, I'm walking on the money. I'm wearing the money. I'm walking on the money. And you do like, you've got the the jewellery embroidered on your clothing and into your clothing. You've got this fine handmade lace 
you've got everything's embroidered, embroidered with gold, the very finest leathers, everything's like just money. You know, even your wigs are money. Increasingly, we see the rise of wigs. In the 17th century, the French and German and Dutch painters, they would sort of link the violin to like booze and gluttony and stupidity, dishonesty, when you see it in painting. Mm. Whereas the Italians, it was, it was like a respectable uh, instrument of the court and the theatre. I find it interesting that there was this instrumental competition going on. There was a tension. With the gamba. Between the, being the, yeah, the, the viols and the, and the violins. Yes. Yeah. I talked to cellist James Beck about the tensions between the violin and the viol family. And for people who are listening to this, uh, the viol family is older than the violin family and it's more delicately built and you might say it's maybe got more in common with the lute family in terms of the lightness of the build. And um, so think of it more as a bowed lute, whereas the violin is a stronger build. More sturdy. It's more sturdy, yeah. So the violin family was the at one stage the new kid in town, and I think there was there's always that tension between the old and the new, and I think because the violin came out of Italy and was of Italy and just was a, such an expression of Italian culture, the Italians were were a bit more into it, mm. and whereas the viol family was utterly dominant in France and in England and in Germany right right up until the um, end of the 18th century and it was really considered to be much more refined and much more aristocratic and much more exclusive um, than the violins and the violins were considered to be crass and strident yeah. maybe a bit too loud and maybe only good for kind of crowd entertainments and not for kind of refined family life so all the ruling classes and royal houses gravitated towards the viols. So if you look at all the great portraits at Versailles of the royal family, all the, if the women were playing instruments, they were playing keyboard instruments or viols. Mm -hmm. No one's playing a cello. No one is playing a violin. Mm -hmm. Even though they possessed these instruments, they were in the vicinity. They weren't for that class of person. Refined. Yeah. Whereas if you look at um, tavern scenes, these street scenes, that are a bit more coarse, that's where the violin is hanging out. And yet it seems to have been embraced from the beginning in, in Italy. It was, mm. it was an acceptable mm. instrument. Yeah. Because well, it, it, it evolved, well, it sort of went to finishing school in Italy, the violin, mm. and so it must have been sort of refined that way for the particular... Um, need a need that they had there. yeah yeah and so there's an, a frenchman called hubert hubert leblanc and he argued in length for the vial uh, which the french did favor like he said and he wrote this big long treatise called the defense de la basse de viol contre les entreprises du violon et les prétentions du violoncelle so it's the defense of the vial the bass viol against the enterprises of the violin and the pretenses of the cello. Oh, yes, the pretentious cello. <laughs> <laughs> so he was really like, oh, yeah, we're yeah. in danger. Yeah. Um, so, so they didn't want, like, you know, the foul violin flooding the <laughs> musical scene. And that was in 1740. So it was actually late. quite late. Like yeah. that's, 
you know, yeah. Strad, like at the end of Strad. So it was still this thing that was, yeah. they were holding on. But you can see if you were if you were running a theatre and you wanted to give your, be popular and give a good experience to your audience, you wouldn't be employing the old players because they're too quiet. Go out of tune. And you'd have to have more of them, which would be expensive. Yeah. And so you'd definitely be gravitating towards violins because you just get, you know, more sound for your buck. Mm. Um, and so those orchestras are being populated by violin and cello and viola players yeah. and, and the double bass, which is the, the, the weird compromise between the, the viol and the violin family. Yeah, it is a bit. I think it's technically, well, some of them are made like a viol. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so what's interesting is there's another, there's an Englishman, John Lenton, in 1693. So quite early, but and he wrote a book called *The Gentleman's Diversion* or *The Violin Explained*. So, <laughs> so it was, you know, you had people sort of for it as yeah, well. Yeah. And Queen Elizabeth had violins. At, Elizabeth the first. Yes. Yeah, right. For dancing, possibly. Yeah. Because she was a big dancer. Yes. Yeah. There's a fantastic portrait of her, and she's midair. The toes. Yeah, you can see the toes hanging out of the bottom of her dress, and she's maybe a foot off the ground. I right, mean, yeah, so the, yeah, they are. They're the dancing one. They're not really for sitting around listening to quiet music, which would be yeah. your gamba. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And a court, you know, it was a big thing in England to have a consort of, yes. of gambas. You'd have a, like a, a large coffer or chest made, and um, within that would sit, you know, maybe four to six different sized viols. Oh, and okay. as a refined family, you would sit around and have a little consort moment which is the collective noun for viols a consort of viols oh yeah yeah look look at that consort of viols arriving <laughs> i think that um that 1690s treatise that you were mentioning about basically kind of introducing the violin the gentleman's diversion or the violin explained yes i think that's because i mean there were violins there were violin makers there's an early english school of violin making and we know that there were violin makers on old london bridge prior to the Great Fire. But we also know that when the first Stradivari instruments started arriving in London, that they did, they were passed around and were seen to be quite strange and new. And so maybe there was a, a renewed taste for these kind of things when the, when the next phase of innovation was coming out of Italy. And maybe if you're an Italian violinist, that was sort of an exception as well, because yeah. you know, you're, yeah. you're from Italy, you're playing the violin. Yeah. It's the yeah. Italian thing. Yeah. And that's the kooky thing about Cremona because it was producing violins and violinists right back to the early 1500s. There were Cremonese violin players living in Germany and France and London. And it was a, it seemed to be a real kind of boasting point of like, yes, here's my Cremonese violinist. Yeah, it's interesting. You've got this, it was a city and it had the cathedral and it had a cathedral school. And they were quite proud that they were very, they were very literate city a lot of the children would go to, would learn to read and write and and then you had this cathedral school which seemed to spit out all these good musicians and composers but because there was just the cathedral they couldn't really go so there was a ceiling you could there weren't employment employment opportunities in Corona. no but even for playing and composing if you were a composer you were limited to the constraints of the council of trent you couldn't you couldn't compose everything you wanted to. So they had this, they were producing all these musicians and composers, but they weren't staying. They had to leave to do anything mm. other than mm. church music, which mm. was quite a limited repertoire. 
Yeah. So in one way, it was good they were making these musicians, and in the yeah. other way, by being by having these constraints, they didn't have a court, so they couldn't they didn't have anywhere to play secular music. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they had to leave. So you had this. Uh, um, you had the fertile ground, but you also had the the conditions that forced those people to yeah. to disperse. Yeah. So so they would become yeah. like yeah. if if it was. Interesting enough to stay, maybe Cremona mm-hmm. wouldn't have been yeah. as known as it is today because they would have all just stayed there. Yeah. So you've got yeah. like the Mantuan court, they were all there. Yeah, well, that's why Monteverdi left yeah. Cremona. He went to, he yeah. went there and there was, he ended up replacing another guy who'd come from Cremona. Yeah. So they, they were they were producing them and sending yeah. them. It's like when you, you know the dandy, you know, dandelions with the yeah. big, big fluffy head yeah. and when you blow on them, the. the yeah, so it was kind the seeds of go over it. maybe it's like a blessing in disguise. The fact that it was yeah. a little bit boring musical life there, even though they yeah. were being well trained. Yeah, and to what degree do you think the the geographical um, element is like Cremona, its position near forests or near water or near trade routes? So it's a major north south trade route, and it's on the Po River, and it has it was a constant point of crossing of armies they would all come through there they would all funnel through and 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 we were talking trade we're talking um no like wars as well like armies yes lots of armies and trade and from the trade point of view you had the river and in that time moving goods by water was 20 times cheaper than overland because it was just so difficult to like roads are not like they are today like a road in summer could disappear because it could just be overgrown yes or you just couldn't find it, or you'd get robbed, or it was just really hard getting things yes. somewhere overland. And that's not just, you know, Cremona in the 1500s. In the mid-1800s in Sydney, it was cheaper to get wheat from South America than it was to get it from Goulburn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you've got to... You had to... Doing overland and horse and cart and all that and from oh, Goulburn wow. was more expensive than getting it off a ship yeah, cause you could, from South America. Oh, wow, well, yeah, because you get like a really huge ship. You get a huge yeah. quantity. Yeah. Oh, Isn't that wow. crazy? So even then, yeah. what, 1850s, yeah. it was like, buy water, local, buy local. Water was cheaper than... Yeah. And if there was a river coming from, yeah. from Goldwood, you'd... Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why we put a jail there. That's the really, that's the really high security jail in Goldwood. <laughs> like, try and get out of here. Oh, my God. Go to South America first and then come. Yet despite Andrea's success as an artisan, he is still renting his house, unable to buy a property outright. According to the census of that year, there are four people living in his house. This is probably Andrea, his wife, and the two boys, Antonio and Girolamo the girls being married off by now. The phrase, who had to buy his own bread, was used in the census to describe Andrea and his family. This meant that he did not own his own house. Despite this, his workshop was a busy place, with himself and his sons producing instruments, one of them for the French king's sister, Marguerite de Valois, no less. The large tenor viola was made then decorated with gold leaf and a painted monogram on the back, with golden fleur-de-lis in the corners and running the length of the rips in Latin the phrase by this bulwark or fortification we stand religion stands and will stand 
A number of similar instruments like this one were made by Andrea, and we could imagine that they were played in the royal court, especially at this time in Paris. Something quite new at court was happening that necessitated more instruments and musicians. Despite the wars of religion going on in the background and the ever-present intrigue and plotting at court, as in Italy, the Renaissance thinkers and artists were creating academies of poetry and music. The idea was to revive the arts of the ancient world in order to harmonize dance, music and language in a way that could result in a higher level of morality. And so was born the court ballet. Despite universal harmony, music, dance and the attaining of a higher level of morality, business for Ajaya was about to start slowing down as the tensions in the French court rose. Marguerite de Valois was not going to be ordering more instruments anytime soon. She had a lot of other things on her plate. Being the king's sister and the daughter of Catherine de' Medici, she didn't really get to choose who she married. So on the 18th of August, 1572, a spring wedding, she married the very Protestant Henry of Navarre. There were not the best love vibes, and it ended in the famed St. Bartholomew Day's massacre. Her mum just absolutely ruined her wedding night. But what were they thinking? So, Catherine the King's mother had a brilliant idea. To calm down the tensions in France between the Catholics and the Protestant Huguenots, she would marry her daughter Marguerite to the Protestant Henry of Navarre. The very Catholic Parisians at court were horrified that the Protestants were coming back into the royal circle. Catherine's son-in-law, King Philip of Spain, and the Pope were not happy about the situation. She had not listened to King Philip's advisers to just kill the Huguenots to solve the problem. And so here we are. Things were getting tense. The court did not attend the wedding. It was a tricky situation. You didn't want to be caught in the crossfire here. And to add to the soup, harvests had been poor and taxes had risen. The people of France were not in the mood for an extravagant royal celebration. I spoke to Dr. John Gagné, Senior Lecturer in History at Sydney University. I was reading the different, um, like, the spectacles and things and the pantomime, like, the uh, for Henry of Navarre, Navarre mm-hmm. or Navarre? Navarre. Navarre. Henry of Navarre's wedding, he had to do this, like, play where he was, which was very sort of... Um, which what they were doing a lot, do these sort of play acting type things. And it was for his wedding where he was in a group of Huguenots and they were sent to hell and his brother-in-law, the king, would come and rescue him and take him out of hell and because uh, he's the king and, and like restore them and it was like the ultimate humiliation. And then, and then the next night has all his friends murdered. So like fantastic mother-in-law there well uh, yeah i mean so you're talking about the the night of saint bartholomew which mm. is 1572 when yeah the idea is that Henri de Navarre would who was you know protestant prince would marry the margot of france who was uh, catherine's daughter and that yes i mean that that didn't go well because then the protestant leadership was murdered dr john gagne senior history lecturer at the university of sydney uh, that you know, so 1572. Interestingly, the 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 columns 
on um, the violins also appear on a medal stamped for King Charles IX right after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, which, you know, the, the, the motto around the edge of the medal says, um, um, Pietas excitavit justitiam, which is piety aroused justice, meaning that, you know, the, the Protestants had it coming because true Catholic faith was angered by their existence. And so they were, um, so it's interesting. And I think, you know, the, I think the columns in that case could be piety and justice. Um, they could re, you know, bring in this idea we were talking about earlier of the strength of the monarch in a sort of Herculean fashion, or that, you know, the stability of the, of the nation or the kingdom was strong under him because he had quashed the Protestant rulers. But, um, or, you know, at least their leadership, not rulers. But, um, but yes, I mean, that, that began what ended up being a, um, a 40-year odyssey for uh, Henri Navarre, who became King Henry IV, in which, you know, he was pulled both ways in both directions. He was, you know, he must have converted three times between Catholicism and Protestantism in an effort to um, soothe angers on both, anger on both sides and to, frankly, find his way to power as well. You know, famously, although probably um, incorrectly or, uh, you know, myth mythically, he said Paris is worth a mass. So, yes, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that the sort of festivities at the wedding would have involved maybe um, things that might have angered the Protestant or used, used the Protestant leadership in a way that made them look like they were damned. Yeah, I was feeling sorry for him. I'm like, he's getting married and he has to do this, like, humiliating thing where, like, everyone knows his. Uh, Protestant, like Huguenot, and then, and then, yeah, and don't know how I did it. Well, I was just trying to stay alive. Yeah, really. yeah. And yet, Catherine ploughed on with the wedding festivities. One of them being a pantomime the night after the wedding, organised by herself. A magnificent masked ball was held at the Petit Bourbon. It included the performance of a pantomime tournoi called The Paradise of Love. King Charles and his two brothers defended 12 angelic nymphs against the Huguenots. They dispatched the Huguenots, led by Henry of Navarre, into hell where, according to an observer, a great number of devils and imps were making infinite fullery and noise. The nymphs then danced a ballet. There followed a combat between knights, accompanied by explosions of gunpowder. The king and his brothers climaxed proceedings by rescuing the Huguenots from hell, which was separated from paradise by a river on which floated the ferryman Charon in his boat. If that wasn't bad enough, after this cringeworthy and awkward piece of theatre, the remaining festivities had to be called off after an assassination attempt on the Huguenot leader, Admiral Coligny, who was shot from a house by an arquebusier. Married at first sight has nothing on these frolicking wedding celebrations. So here was what was going on. To solve the problem of the pesky Protestants, a hit list to remove a few of the key leading nobles of that persuasion who had come to Paris for the wedding had been dispatched. And here is where the events took on a life of their own. Instead of killing the 20-odd leaders to make a point, 
the instigators of this subtle plan may have accidentally ended up putting into motion an event that killed between 5 to 30,000 people. As the mania spread over the countryside, it ended in a free-for-all and a full-scale massacre. This may or may not have been the original plan, but at the end of the day it was a disaster for many involved, the effects being felt throughout the country and down into Italy, all the way to the Amati workshop as the French market would dry up and fizzle out until the country could work itself out. My name is Susan Bromhall and I'm the Director of the Gender and Women's History Research Centre at the Australian Catholic University. I'm a historian by training and I work on women and gender ideologies and assumptions in the early modern period in Europe. I don't believe there's any evidence, I certainly couldn't find any myself, of, of Catherine sort of writing to the Amati workshop saying, I'd like to make an order of several, you know, stringed instruments and I'd like them to look like this. Susan Bromhall. And, I, and I'm sort of saying that laughingly, and yet we actually do have accounts from Catherine where we literally have a letter where she's writing, in one case, to a jeweller and saying, I would like you to make this jewel, and I'm going to draw on the side of the letter a little picture of what I want the jewel to look like, and this is what you should put in it, and these are the stones I want you to use, and this is what it means. It's the most helpful letter ever <laughs> um, because it sets out exactly the level of detail she is interested in her artistic work. She absolutely knows what she wants. She knows how to spell it out. She knows how to draw it. And she basically says, go to, make it. And we know who it's for. So everything about, you know, that particular commission is watertight. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be impossible to think that she could order this. And clearly her Italian connections, not necessarily to Cremona, but to a network of people who could direct her to the right, you know, string makers, instrument makers, is entirely plausible. And it's much more likely in fifteen in the early 1560s, if that's when these are commissioned, that it's Catherine who's basically holding the purse strings and not her 10 to 13-year-old son who's, who's making this commission. And yet it would make sense that everything on that commission will be representing Charles because that's the person in whose interests Catherine was trying to make political messaging at that point in time. Yeah, I find it interesting. Um, I feel like she she got a lot of things from Florence. And at that time, there was just one violin maker in Cremona, and that was Andrea Amati. And it, I find it interesting that um, she gets these instruments from Cremona and not not from Florence. And, um, and would that have changed the sort of the trajectory of violin making had she got them from Florence yeah an interesting question I mean we do have letters again from her and letters are such a great source for Catherine where she's writing to her um, her cousin Cosimo who becomes the Duke of Florence and she writes to him saying can you find me a good artist who could do x I'm looking for an artist to do Y. And she's not always saying necessarily, you know, to bring them to France. Sometimes she wants to, but often she's saying, I've got this commission and I think somebody over there would be best for it. So depending on the reputation of the Amati, you know, if, if her task is find me the best, um, then perhaps he did. Uh, and, you know, unless Cosimo has a relationship with the Florentine violin makers and he wants to support them, then I guess he'd write back and say, well, they were the best. But in this case, it looks like that that didn't happen. But she doesn't have to work through her cousin. Um, she, she also just, 
you know, she writes to ambassadors with these kinds of requests. I've seen that too. It's not just, you know, royal friends and family members. She's writing to everyone all the time saying, find me the best person. So she's also cross-referencing the information she gets back before she makes a decision. So this is somebody who's really active in in sourcing, wow. yeah, sourcing her commissions. She sounds so, she sounds so efficient. <laughs> you know, when, I, I sometimes look at these letters and think she must have done nothing else all day because, I mean, not all of them, they're not all handwritten, but a lot of them are. And when you read into them, the, the level of detail of the sort of issues she's carrying in her head at once just seems phenomenal. I don't know how she does it, but, you know, she did. And I think this, I think that probably tells us too that this is a real interest for her. She was engaged by the arts and so therefore, you know, it kept her, it kept her attention. So what does this have to do with violins? Well, war, again, it's bad for business. Disturbing trade routes and the economy. Fortunately, in Cremona, under the Spanish administration, things were relatively calm. But the French market was important, and civil war was not going to help increase business. So how did Catherine deal with this conflict that was draining the country of even more money that they didn't have to begin with? Well, she organised court festivities. At Fontainebleau, one of the royal residences, Catherine arranged entertainments that lasted for days. These included fancy dress, jousting and chivalrous events in allegorical settings. I'm sure Henry was just having a grand old time with that mother-in-law of his and after only just surviving his killer wedding by the skin of his teeth. There were knights dressed as Greeks and Trojans fighting over scantily clad demoiselles trapped by a giant and a dwarf in a tower on an enchanted island. The whole thing would end in drama as the tower, losing its magical properties, burst into flames. In another spectacle, singing sirens swam past the king and Neptune floated by in a chariot drawn by seahorses. Just the usual. While opera was all the thing in Italy, in France it was the court ballet. Susan Broomhall talks to us about these spectacles. A line of sight of the viewer looking at them is a kind of, mm, it's not quite bird's eye, but it's certainly looking down on a diagonal, let's say, um, so you can see the kinds of arrangements that are being made. And yes, these, these all have meaning. I mean, these have unfortunately incredibly complex kinds of meaning that scholars are still debating exactly what the reference points are. This is a culture where people at court are really steeped in classical traditions, quite often esoteric kinds of uh, material. If you think of um, Nostradamus as a contemporary to this culture, he's part of this culture, in fact, um, and you think about the the endless reinterpretation of of the lines of his his different works and what they might mean. Um, you might get a it, it gives you a little bit of a feel for the kind of complexity of of what might be embedded behind both the ballets and the poetry and the arts of the time, that they have really complex kinds of meanings that aren't exactly straightforward to untangle. Um, so they're often classically, they're referencing classical themes, um, you know, and certainly that's true in the mythology, but they are also referencing things like mathematics at the time, um, early understandings of science. All of this is kind of blended together in a, in a, in a cultural performance that's also trying to do political work. So it's a, it's a lot going on at once. So <laughs> 
So if I'm like a courtier and I like would I un- I would understand all this and wow. go, oh look at that, look at that triangle. Wow. Well, Pythagorean theorem what? and oh did you get that political message? So you, I mean, this is kind of what you're meant to think, I think. But the fact that you're pre- I mean, something like this 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 ballet comique publication um, suggests to me that perhaps everyone didn't quite get it and maybe you need it explained to you. Like sometimes we do find kind of explanation books of various ceremonies or let's say an entry to a town that often some of these big, big ceremonial moments are accompanied by almost like a handbook. And, you know, sure, it's a record of the event, but it's also a kind of unpacking of what on earth was being explained in that event. And, you know, we kind of do it now. I'm thinking about recent very large ceremonial occasions like the funeral of the of Queen Elizabeth II or a royal wedding, for example. Often, you know, you might watch that on television and you ha- and clearly the, the commentators have been kind of given a script to say, oh, this is what's happening now and here are the guards coming in and they're going to do this. You know, we have it kind of narrated to us in a certain way to make sense of the different elements. And I think the same thing would have been happening there too. Certainly, sure, the courtiers have a high level of education in things that we now perhaps don't quite know and see straight away. But I think there's also an audience of people who would really like a handbook to help them understand what it was they just saw. And then obviously there's a whole other audience of people beyond the court who would never be able to see this at court. You know, it has a limited audience of prestigious people at court, but some publisher and printer can make an awful lot of money selling the story of it to everybody else who couldn't be there so you know I think people are understanding these things at very different levels um and so Charles the ninth he's he's died by this stage is that it uh certainly if we're talking about the 1581 ballet yes he's passed away yeah so he's was he king number two yeah out of the three yeah so she has three sons who become kings the first one is Francois the second and he really only lasts about a year Um, And perhaps he's most famous for being married to Mary, Queen of Scots. So after he passes away as a teenager, he must only be about 16 when he dies. And I think she would be about the same age. She then returns to Scotland, having grown up at the French court and, you know, various disasters unfold for her on her return to Scotland. Um, So then Francois II, then the king who follows him is Charles IX. In 1574, as the civil war rages in France, money is a bit tight and Andrea has to borrow 90 lira from a neighbour. He is able to pay him back over the next five months, but the same year their youngest son, Girolamo, gets married to Lucrezia Cronetti. She comes to live in the family home with them. Andrea, as the head of the family, also receives part of her dowry. In the next few years, Andrea is finally able to buy the family home so that in the following census, he is noted as a landowner. The Amati brothers had a pivotal role in the workshop, helping their father, who was entering his 70s. They were all living and working in the same household, spending a lot of family time together. Then one cold winter's night on Christmas Eve of 1577, at the age of 72, Andrea Amati died, leaving his sons, the brothers, to carry on the family legacy and his business. Without their father's presence, things would never be quite the same. Antonio, the older brother, was now legally head of the family unit and would have to deal with the responsibilities that entailed. It would not always be smooth sailing for the brothers and they would surprisingly survive incredible odds to keep plying their trade. But this is a story for the next episode of The Violin Chronicles.
Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you hear and would be into supporting the podcast so I can make even more episodes, please sign up to Patreon. You can find that on patreon.com forward slash The Violin Chronicles. This brings us to the end of the series on Andrea Amati. But never fear, in the next episode, I'll be looking at his two sons, known as the Amati brothers. I would like to thank my wonderful guests, James Beck, Dr. Susan Broomhall, Dr. John Gagne, and Dr. Emily Brayshaw. I would also like to thank the Australian Chamber Orchestra for their cooperation and permission to play some of their live tracks, and also to the ABC for permission to play Daniel Yeadon's recording of the Telemon Sonata in D major on his viola da gamba. It's always great to hear from listeners, and if you would like to contact me, you can do so via email on theviolinchronicles at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at theviolinchronicles.podbean.com. And I also have an Instagram with the handle at theviolinchronicles. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I'll catch you next time.